Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day! Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy, and historically curled microphone cord <laughs> radio. <laughs> you, you know where you do that, and it's like I just—it's like having a bad hair day. Rob it's... had a struggle with his headphones, <laughs> just peeling back the curtain on this well-oiled radio machine. Yeah, the the, the croissants, <laughs> the croissants. <laughs> oh well, uh, yeah, I am Rob Jan and Megan McHugh. And our show today is entitled Knife Fight on the Helter Skelter. Our podcast title is Once a Pod, a Time in Hollywood. How would you not do that? <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, there's a lot to get through today. So there we is. Get into it. We've got loads to yeah, cover. Loads and loads and loads. And by the way, it is not too late to subscribe during the Radiothon period as such and still be fully eligible for all of the Easter eggs, <laughs> the giveaways. No, it's not Easter yet. <laughs> it's not April Amnesty. Um, yeah, so it's, there's still time to do that. And of course, you know the drill for all of that. So we'll talk to you about that as we go along. And thank you to everybody who subscribed to the station and to Zero G during the radio form, as usual. Yes, we appreciate you and thank you very much. Never taken for granted. In no. S- in spite of our well-known Jedi mind tricks. <laughs> <laughs> ah, speaking of, have ah. you watched the new... I'm going to admit I've not watched the new trailer yet. Yes. Have you watched it? The uh, what's 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 I can't remember what the name of the movie oh, God, is. Me neither. That's bad, isn't it? Uh, Jedi. Jedi Rising or something. Jedi. <laughs> Jedi gets up off the ground. Uh, <laughs> oh. Jedi Awakening. Fallen Order. What is that? Oh, I don't know. No, that's a game. <laughs> God, we're a mess today. We're a right mess. But the new of uh, Star Wars films in the like Force Awakens reboot yeah. vibe. Yeah. Um, the trailer for that dropped last week. Yep. To much um, discussion. So we'll let you go and watch that. Is Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. There we go. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, lots of. Uh, Controversy and talking and wigwam and all of that. So, check that out if you. You know, I, I think I think the the main thing is that they they, I mean they, they sort of did signpost this. Are they are they actually trying to fake us out? Has Ray gone to the dark side of the force? Of course, they're going to try to hook us in with trailers mm. and misleading bits and bobs. And I don't think we'll really know until we. There was rumours of that happening in the last film. I, f- I find the whole Star Wars universe now it's sort of like this bigger robberos. It just eats its own tail it does round and round there's a point where the cleverness becomes a bit tedious it wasn't all that clever to start with it was fun (laughs) yeah it was it was i mean as someone who liked the last jedi i don't know that's a contentious one i think it'll be interesting to see how they round this off with the the new film (laughs) i get so confused on the other hand the um the trailer for uh, The Mandalorian. Oh, yes, uh, Which is one of the Disney Plus series, shows. yep. That's dropped. And that's the John Favreau series with a full cast of amazing voice talent and, and actors. Yep. Uh, it's live action, uh, but because yeah, it's Star Wars, some of the things, creatures just get voiced. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> but, I mean, of all the names, of all the names I did not expect to see, Werner Herzog. Oh, I didn't <laughs> see that. Yeah. Really? Interesting. <clears throat> or are you having me on? No, I'm not. Have a look. He's, he's actually there playing some kind of um, space oh, yes. lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> I think his voice is the most wonderful. If you've never watched it, you should look up the YouTube video, Werner, Werner Herzog Reads Where's Wally. It's a fake, obviously, <laughs> but it is hilarious. It's quite old now. <laughs> But it is one of my favourite little YouTube nuggets to recommend people. So if you're a Werner Herzog fan and a Where's Wally fan, have a look at that joke, YouTube. Um, Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. I have a funny relationship with Star Wars. Absolutely love that A New Hope back in the day when I was watching it in the cinema in 1977. An original viewer. 
Saw it 14 times oh. at the cinema. Uh, went absolutely crazy over it. Um, also loved Empire Strikes Back. Got into Return of the Jedi and I thought, teddy bears? <laughs> and I actually like teddy bears. And I'm thinking, not in this context. When it, yeah. And when so it odd. for me it all kind of fell down after that. We've done this over the years. Uh, yeah. Rogue One I enjoyed very much. Loved that. Um, and uh, some of the Star Wars um, animated series, great. Yeah, yeah. You know, especially um, the non-existent Jendi Tartakovsky's um, Clone Wars, now sort of non, totally non-canon. Exactly. They really sheared off some of the things they yeah, didn't they want to have. They, yeah. they, they, they shook it off their... Uh, um, I'm trying to think of a Star Wars monster. Uh, Dianogu claw, if they have one of those... If they have claws. They have tentacles. They've got... They? Yeah. I mean, I think... The thing with Rogue One is maybe why I think that's one of the strongest of the new films, mm. probably the strongest really, mm. is because it wasn't trying to tap into a lot of that lore and mythology that was set up. It, it had the link, yeah. so but it was it was free to do some of its own things. So it, I think you're right with the Ouroboros thing where maybe it's cursed, the new series is a bit cursed by all of its overhanging... Um, the master what, fails come the students. before, and, yeah. yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how yeah. it all goes out. But lots of exciting Star Wars news. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, along with that huge new uh, theme park that they opened. Gosh. Wow. They're really – I think Disney's really trying to make a strong – Do you think I, – I think because <laughs> – yeah. I think because Earth is busy pumping all this stuff out into space – and presumably on the airways, presumably there's there's someone out there able with the ability to collect it all. <laughs> and there might be entire civilizations who like binge Earth flicks. Yeah. You know, binge watch Earth flicks. And, and I do wonder if there's enough of them out there, <laughs> if Earth will someday become like a theme park. Yeah. Of nothing but theme parks for its television shows and movies. <laughs> like, you know, it'll be like Avengers yeah. World. Yeah, like an ant farm for like within a, yeah. Yeah. It's we'll interesting. Be, yeah. Oh, my God, that's a great idea. <laughs> oh, copyright. Write, write that up. <laughs> Just make a little note there. All right. TM. We, we, got, we got so, so off track there. And we're like, oh, we've got a busy show. We've got to stay on track. And then we go on a six-minute yeah. tangent. I, I want to acknowledge the resilience of the teen noir detective series, Veronica Mars. Mm. Three original seasons from 2004 across two networks, UPN and its successor, The CW. A decade later in 2014, a remarkably successful Kickstarter campaign crowdfunded a new movie. And I think they got the money in like five or six hours or something. Phenomenally yes. Oh, the fans for this, the marshmallows... The love is strong. Is that what they call them? Yeah. <laughs> well, so, that's what I call them. So that's screened on Hulu and other streaming services, Surfing the Wave. Yeah. And uh, you could get it online and, and whatnot, like purchase it for, straight directly, um, the movie, if you're a fan kind of thing. So. And there was an eight-episode metafiction web series as well at the same time. Oh. It was like one of the spin-off characters trying to create a spin-off show. Oh, God, there's nothing sadder than when they try to create a spin-off show. And this is where I, 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 the first stage, expended fall away and allow Megan to launch into her <laughs> Mars probe. Well, firstly, <laughs> what's your relationship with Veronica Mars in um, terms of well, viewer, very, viewing? Very, very special, actually. Uh, someone recommended it to me, mm. whose advice, recommendation I could not possibly ignore. It was Joss Whedon ah. recommended it. And... Um, so I watched a couple of episodes and I and I agreed it was, uh, yeah, it was actually a really good television show. Um, the the dialogue was razor sharp. Mm. Uh, Kristen Bell was just great. I mean, she's the glowing heart at the centre mm. of that show. So I watched a few episodes and dipped into it a couple of other times, but it wasn't for me. There wasn't enough um, genre in terms That's of science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, we talked about this before, that the noir brush that was over it wasn't quite enough to keep you mm. in, in hooked in kind of thing. So, I remember that. Yes. your story. Take it away. So I watched Veronica Mars, I don't think when it had first come out, someone else had recommended it to me as well. So I think I watched it back actually on DVD, back when that was a thing. I purchased the little box set. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a story for those who aren't familiar of a teen called Veronica. Well, it started out as a story of a teen. She was a teen at the time. Veronica Mars, played by the wonderful Kristen Bell. I just can't say how much I love her as an actress. And I really think she's so charismatic. She was in such a good place at the time. 
and subsequently. Well, and that's the thing. I think part of it too is like her relationship with Ted Danson um, in The Good Place is these really good core kind of back and forth relationships she has with her co-stars. So Mm -hmm. in Veronica Mars, one of the core relationships of the story is her relationship with her dad, Keith Mars, um, played by Enrico Colantoni. Um, He was... um, I can't remember. He was in Just Shoot Me. That was when I first saw him. He was in that <laughs> sitcom Just Shoot Me about working at a fashion magazine. I have watched that. Yeah, I used to watch it. was always on TV. Um, and so that's kind of one of the core relationships because the backstory, and this isn't really a spoiler because it's the premise of the original show, is that Veronica Mars's best friend uh, has been killed and... Uh, her dad, who was the sheriff at the time, was investigating the murder. And anyway, the person who's been arrested for it, they don't really believe is the real culprit. So part of the first season is uncovering what actually happened to Lily, who's played by Amanda Seyfried in the original series. Well, yeah, she's not played by anyone else ever. But um, it's kind of unwrapping that mystery as well as it's set within this framework of Veronica Mars now works with, um, well, her dad is a private investigator um, since having been booted from police work. And so she kind of helps him out with that. So she solves some small time cases and kind of makes a bit of a name for herself around Neptune, which is where they live as a snoop, but also a very, very good and savvy detective, even though she's quite young. Mars lives in Neptune. Exactly. Ah. (laughs) Uh, And Neptune is one of those Californian towns where there's a lot of famous people, a lot of mansions, but there's quite a big divide between that and sort of the community of um, sort of Mexican immigrants and so forth. But I bet it's like every other detective town. It has a very unusually high death rate. Yes. Well, I mean, exactly like that... um, city where that Angela Lansbury lived in, uh, in um, that's been a while. she wrote. Cabot Cove? Or Cabot Cove. Cove, yeah. Cabot Cove yeah. sounds right. Um, yes, so there's plenty of mysteries. Not all of them involve murder, but a decent amount of crime. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a bit of a supporting cast of characters. She has a best friend called Wallace. Um, and throughout the series, she forms some relationships with the gang members and other people, rich kids, all of that kind of stuff. She has an ongoing love triangle dealio as well um so i won't ruin much more if you haven't watched it you definitely should it's got the original series had this really lovely overlay of a very noirish vibe there was something about the cinematography that really felt very unique um and very veronica marzi like it just became very signature to me so let's cut to the movie comes out a couple of years ago now. Again, crowdfunded. So it was a bit of a fan thing. A lot of people thought they would never see Veronica Mars again, and that would be that. There were originally three seasons, but I would say the last – I barely remember what happens in the last two seasons of Veronica Mars. The first season is definitely the strongest and the best. Didn't they do something like um, – like they did a long story arc in the first season – and then they went to like, um, well, maybe the first and second, and then they went to like, uh, you know, smaller arcs. Yeah, they and it was one of those ones kind of like the X-Files where there's an overarching story, but then each episode there's a little mystery or a little crime that Veronica's is working on. Mm. And then that was for the first two seasons. And then the last season, which I barely remember, I think they really struggled to think of a core mystery for her to unwrap. Mm-hmm. Um, so the movie is very much a fan service thing. Like it's... It's, I can't even go into it. I quite enjoyed it. So that was like 10 years after the series? Um, yeah. So that was 2014, I think you said. And so it's interesting because um, – oh, I'm having a mind blank. Uh, Jessica Jones. She's in the original series. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Kristen Ritter. And they bring back a lot of the characters for the movie. I'd say most of the characters appear again in the movie. They managed to get them back for that. Yeah. And a decent chunk do appear – in let's cut to the present, okay. uh, season four. So they are... Which is on? It's on uh, Stan. Stan, okay. Yeah, so Stan actually has all of the original seasons. It has the movie and then it has this um, fourth season, which is kind of, it's being called Veronica Mars' fourth season. So it's a little confusing because they're not keeping it with the other seasons of Veronica Mars. It's its own thing in mm-hmm. their platform. So um, it was originally on Hulu in the States and they've rolled this out because obviously there's such a big fan love for it. And Rob Thomas, who's the creator, has been kind of involved in all of these iterations. So they got him back, got him to do the season. And that's where we are now. Do we have the the magic in the bottle still there? Look, so oh, sorry, I... Sorry, I'm preempting you. Tell us what it's about first. Right. So it's 
Veronica Mars, I mean, this is semi-spoiler for what happens in the movie. Yeah. Um, but in the movie, they sort of set it up in where uh, Veronica's kind of gone and led, started to lead her own life. And at the end of the movie, she returns to Neptune and sort of takes up working with her dad at the PI agency, Mars Investigations. Um, and that's where this season starts. So she's back in Neptune. So we've got a lot of the same... Um, kind of setting that we got from the original season. So if you think about it, like there was the original season, the movie is kind of the end of that brings her back to the original place where it all started. And then season four, they're kind of free to start again um, with another mystery. Uh So she's living back. She's living back in Neptune. She is, I I feel like I don't want to spoil certain things, even though I know they're kind of old news now, but let's just say she's, she's leading a pretty nice. um, Does she become one of the rich people? No, 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 definitely not. Okay. But let's just say that it revolves, this revolves a bit around Veronica's personal life and where she wants to go with her relationship. Yeah. And also there's one long overarching crime story which goes throughout the whole eight episodes. So season four is eight episodes yeah. and it's, sent, it's set in um, during spring break. So the whole premise is that spring break is really big in Neptune um, and there's been a series of bombs. This is all in the, the trailer, so I'm not spoiling it. There's been a series of bombings and crimes that are kind of ruining spring break for everyone. Uh, so she has to kind of figure out what's going on and who's responsible. Okay. So, look, I enjoyed it because, like I said, I like Kristen Bell. I did feel that there was something about the feel of the series. It didn't feel the same as the original. Mm -hmm. Like, it didn't have that nice noir vibe. Yeah. I thought the overall story was a bit limp, like the overall crime story and the eventual resolution and reveal, quote unquote, uh, was a bit lame. To be honest, I can see they were trying to be a bit more contemporary and incorporate um, some things like, you know, there's a lot of people who solve crimes online and and want to be part of investigations and things like that. Um, and so I kind of like that they incorporated some more contemporary things, considering the original series was quite a few years ago now. But overall, I just thought the crime story was far too weak. Oh, okay. And there was a twist again, quote, unquote, towards the end, which I just kind of didn't sit with me. I was like, why do that? Why do that? And it's really because it's a procedural show. It's really important to get that right. It is. And I think in a lot of ways they got the character essences right again, and I felt that was really good. They do introduce a new young character, and I was kind of – I wondered if they were kind of grooming her for a spin-off, but I don't think they will. And obviously that core relationship of her and her dad – is still really strong. And I think that's the heart of the show and probably the real strength for why what will get you through the eight episodes. I remember that from the, the episodes I did watch. It was it was um, a good, solid relationship and, you know... Good banter. Something different from from the usual... Very much ...dysfunctional so. parental relationship. Yeah, it was... I thought, and it was a very much, even when she was a teen, like kind of talk among equals and I kind of really liked that vibe. So... Look, overall, I think if you're a Veronica Mars fan, definitely take a look at it. I whipped through it pretty quickly. It's pretty easy watching. It's not that challenging. Um, It was nice to see some of the characters return. And again, Kristen Bell is fantastic as Veronica Mars, and I think she still kicks butt with that character. Um, And it's well worth a watch, but I don't think I would say I think it's that good. Okay. So one for the fans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I might be being a little harsh on it, but I think maybe I expected a bit more. Mm. So that's another thing too. I probably had high expectations for it. Is there potential for more? I'm sure there will be. I think um, depending on whether they can get people back for more, Mm. it didn't leave it on a note of either yes or no. So we'll see. Okay. We'll see. Like in 2029. Who knows? Who knows? Um but, yeah, I definitely think if you've never watched any, give it a go. If you're a fan, check it out. Could you possibly say that um, her character in in Life on uh, – not Life on Mars, <laughs> Veronica Mars. <laughs> her character in Veronica Mars is uh, the same character that she is in um, The Good Life. I mean The Good Place. Up, the Good Place. She's. A, I mean, <laughs> the, the thing about Kristen Bell is she maybe is a little bit the same character all the time, which is maybe uh, just Kristen Bell, yeah. you know, the Jeff Goldblum thing. But I'm kind of fine with it. Because yeah. I think 
even when she, if she is doing a similar thing, it's still a bit of a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. Overall, enjoyed, but not spectacular. Veronica Mars season four now on Stan. Yes, so you can check out all of the Veronica Mars properties on there now. Mm. Um, movie, original series, and season four. Look, whatever streaming platform you're talking about, um, that is. And we've we've been talking about streaming platforms for a while because it's the thing of the decade now. Um, one of the things I do like about them is you get all the episodes that we ever made there. Yes, and I think it's it's good when they sort of let you have the rest of it because there's something new coming out. Yeah. So I think that I love having Veronica Mars available, like the original series. So I think I might even go back and watch a bit of that. There you go. Again, so. Like like you've got the time. Yeah. <laughs> like there's not, like I'm not saturated with content already. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I think actually the, the the track from the Dandy Warhols that they use for the title of the Veronica Mars television show. Oh, that was the other thing. The title cards felt very – they're a little Marvel TV series. <laughs> Have you watched the title credits at all? No. Have, no. Just Google them at some point. They're very similar to like the Daredevil Jessica Jones style of yeah. of uh, credit sequence. Like, uh, Is that intro. the old credit sequence? No, the new ones. The so new they've ones. done a revamped one ah, okay. and then a cover – to go of the original theme song to go with. Mind boggles. <laughs> and it's called We Used to Be Friends. And I kind of like that because it sort of says something about a show that was cancelled, but you couldn't beat to death of a stick and then came back again. Yeah. You know? So I think that it's kind of meta uh, or um, whatever the opposite <laughs> of meta is when you go backwards in time. Atem. <laughs> Here we go. We Used to Be Friends from Veronica Mars. Well, actually, this is a track that they did. The Dandy Warhols would have done elsewhere first. And yeah, then so that, they've it. just selected that song yeah, yeah. to use originally. Yeah. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero G on 3 R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere, anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 with three exclamation marks. Hmm. <laughs> I must actually made a dark crystal noise then. When I was like, <laughs> That's the way that Skeksis sound. <laughs> well, there we had the Dandy Warhols. We used to be friends. Yes, the... Uh theme song for the original three seasons of Veronica Mars. Hmm. <laughs> there, I did it again. All right, but I won't. I will go instead to the Korean Film Festival. Melbourne is a city of festivals. It certainly is. Uh, in this case, the, um, the Korean Film Festival for 2019 is now in Australia for its 10th year. Uh, it's travelled through Sydney and Canberra and opens this week in Melbourne and Brisbane from September the 5th. Uh, in Melbourne, it will play under the auspices of Acme at its temporary home at the refurbished Capitol Cinema in Swanston Walk. There are 16 films in all, Ooh. including Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Woohoo! Uh, A dom- brilliant film yes, that we, we have, both loved. We have discussed that. Domestic comedy horror social commentary and just yep. just a great film all around. Uh, another one which caught my eye in zero-G terms was The Odd Family... Zombie on Sale, <laughs> which is about a, uh, a pharmaceutical company in Korea, hopefully a fictitious one, and they've been doing unholy medical experiments on humans. Something goes wrong, there's zombies, yada, yada, yada. Or, the uh, usual. Yes. <laughs> uh, and um, there's the, uh, the Park family who um, are kind of like a little bandit group con men and so on and uh, and then they run into the zombies so it's kind of one of those mixed sort of genre zomcoms the odd family zombie on sale and i think that will have been directed by lee min jay and uh it looks quite like quite a bit of fun actually just from that now we were actually able to preview a movie called the great battle and that is pretty much everything is in that title there. <laughs> like John Liu's um, uh, Red Cliff, this is uh, an epic and, let's say, pretty much understandably patriotic film mm. uh, set in the year, well, it's set in, uh, set in 
the fictional realm of historical movies when you think about it. Uh, uh-huh. Something like 645 AD in uh, sort of proto-Korea, um, the kingdom of uh, Goguryeo, and it is being invaded by the Tang Dynasty Emperor Li. And he's got designs upon it. Now, look, this film is basically about the siege of the fortress of Anxi, um, which is commanded by a plucky general called Yang. And he refuses to rally to the command to form a great army and go and confront the Tang Emperor Ah. on the plains. Why does he refuse to do this? Because he's smart (laughs) and he knows that there is a massive... Tang army there and you just don't you're not going to win yeah and so this proves and so as things fall apart in Korea the only fortress that stands in the way of the Tang Emperor's march is Yang's fortress of Anxi and after that if he manages if the emperor manages to reduce that he'll be able to pretty much have his way with the capital just march into there so there's already a couple of um military film tropes in play in this one right right at the start you start thinking of um the two films uh, zulu dawn and zulu there's a, a feeling of of that with the um the the tang army taking the place of the zulus warriors in that and the uh, the defenders of the fortress being like the british army you know so there's a, that sort of thing in play there and that look to be honest there is every single trope and cliche that you can imagine in this film yeah but I actually enjoyed it. Okay. It, it, it flowed along quite nicely. It was honestly told. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, they, I've ha- I was having a look at the historical background on this because it's a real, based on a real story. Mm. And parts of it are straight down the line. Others, not so much. Probably the bit where the supernatural stuff comes into play. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably, I would say. But I wasn't there, so I don't know. You know, and... Um, uh, it, it actually felt like this was a film that needed another maybe 45 minutes to fully develop the oh, characters okay. because they were interesting characters and if they'd done like a red cliff and maybe done it in two parts or something, yeah, sure. I think I would have um, felt it was a bit more justified. Um, it reminded me a little bit, although, okay, it doesn't have um, um, anime sort of uh, squads of brave characters swinging on ropes off walls or anything. Um, fighting monsters. It reminded me a bit of the of um, Great Wall. Yeah, sure. Yeah, in in tone, like a movie that comes very very close to being a great movie. Yeah, but not yeah. quite there. Somehow, just doesn't quite connect. Yeah, but for all of that, I, I thought it was well worth watching, even on the um, the telly that I watched it on. Yeah. And I think that if it was up on a big screen, you'd really get sucked into it. Be pretty and, amazing. And it's got a, a lot of echoes from the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, the Siege of the In Battle of Helm's In my opinion, Door. the best Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, it's certainly <laughs> one of the great ones, I thought. Um, and, you know, when you see see this film, there'll be things that come to mind from yeah. that. Uh, but, you know, it's I often think of these. I'd never heard of this battle before, so... I looked it up on the back of it. So I've learned something from watching The Great Battle. Ah. <laughs> and you can go along and see it on the big screen. Yes. It, is it the Capitol? Yes. On Saturday the 7th of September, mm. um, there's a screening of that. So you can have a look online for tickets to that. Now, Kim Kwang-sik, the director of this, started out as a special effects crew member on a movie called The Flying Monster in 1984. Ooh, good title. Yeah. So he actually kind of knows his stuff and you can see nice. how he's moved through that. From doing some um, rom-coms. Um, the star of the movie is um, Park Sung-Wung, who plays uh, General Yang. I've seen him before in uh, 2008's A Frozen Flower movie, oh. uh, another period piece. And I think also set in the same kingdom as well, but I could be wrong there. I'm just sort of remembering that off my own bat. Um, yeah, so uh, that's another one of the three films that I was kind of thinking, you know, Parasite and uh, The Odd Family Zombie on Sale mm-hmm. and The Great Battle that would be of some relevance, particular relevance to Zero-G. There's yeah. probably a few more um, more uh, socially active modern <laughs> films in there too, but we'll pass those by because, you know, that's what normal people see. <laughs> we want the zombie stuff. Yeah, bring on the zombie stuff. There is a really great South Korean um, television series 
about a zombie incursion in uh, medieval. That's South right. You reviewed, we, that we reviewed that one. What's it called again? Uh, I knew you'd have me there. <laughs> it was on a streaming service. And I watched it, it was. I remember. Uh, it was an awesome little piece. Something flower. I think there's going to be a second. Um, Rampant. Yeah, something like that. Rampage or no, no, that's the um, the rock movie. Uh, Ravages or something. I don't know. I think it's rampant. We'll, we'll think about it as we go along. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. All right, so we'll flick over now to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, the late ta- the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. The tenth set to be an R-rated Star Trek movie. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, he said that he might not do a tenth one. Yeah. If if he feels this has been well received, he'll end on a high note. I think that's what he said before it was released. Because he's only he's always said he'd only do ten films. Mm-hmm. Um, he counts Kill Bill as one film. So we'll see if he does do a tenth. Mm. And if and when that happens. Mm. Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Ex-video store employee. Divisive director at large. Um, Much talked about. Yes. And here we have his new film before us. So, uh, okay, obviously he's directing it and having um, written it as well. He's still in that... um, He loves the old writer slash director. Auto mode. And... um, once again, this one stars Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes, but uh, first film he, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt have ever appeared in together. Oh, really? Yes, I they've know. never appeared in a film before together until yeah. now. And that's funny because they look so much that I actually didn't know whether or not they were not the same person because I'd never seen them in a film together before. <laughs> Usually it's a Leo Matt Damon thing. Yeah. but um, And... I think it's. Very, I think they're a great choice because I actually. I think it was sort of a side effect of the film. It's not the main thrust of the film, but yeah. it made me think a bit about that era of the movie star and kind of the late nineties, early two thousands, and that Leo Brad, that whole era of star. I don't know if they really exist as much anymore mm. because I think there's so much celebrity out there. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know that whole movie star thing. It's changed a bit. So it's not just about 1969, which is the the um, the era it's set in. It could also be about 1996. Oh yeah, yeah. good move. Good. That was a good year for films as well, by the way. Possibly yes, one of the best was. years for film. Oh look, they say that, and uh, and every time I, I I agree with that, then I realise that there was another year that was the best year for films. <laughs> so, you know. But anyway, uh, all right. So it is set in 1969, um, mostly in and around Hollywood, um, in Los Angeles, and also a little bit in the air when you're commuting from <laughs> from America to Europe. Just occasionally some scenes set in oh, yes. airliners. I was like, what's the... Oh, yes, yeah. But generally it's a story about Hollywood. Yeah. The Second Southeast Asian War is raging in and around Vietnam, which has got echoes in the streets and the culture in mainland America. Um, there's the hippie subculture running through its um, transition from being still a subculture into actually being co-opted by the mainstream yes. marketing world into the 1970s when you saw it converted into the cool It goes from setting. counterculture to more mainstream. Yeah. Bloody madmen, I blame them. Uh, <laughs> Very interesting time for America, not just Hollywood. People were tuning in and dropping out and they were tuning into television uh, at a cost to the cinema. Yes. Which was already addicted in itself to TV because they were um, getting additional income from selling their movies after a first run to television. Which is amazing when you think about things like that that you just consider to be the norm. Yeah. Um, this is when, yeah, they're starting to monetize different elements. And I think a large part of the population was very disillusioned at this time as well. Mm. Oh, of course. So, you know, you've got moon landing, um, Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. There's, there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things that are happening in this decade. And we are about to enter one of the core, core periods. Um, I mean, because a lot of the time it was called like Tarantino's Charlie Manson, Manson Murders movie. Yes. But the Manson Murders, of course, were a pivotal kind of moment in 
uh, of that era for America. So, yeah. and that's sort of part of this story as well. Well, it's a whole it's a whole loss. Uh, you can't really. I mean, the Americans make a lot about this, but looking at it from the outside, you know, they think it's like loss of innocence. But we look at it, America from the outside, the USA, and think, well, you know, there's a whole lot of things that have happened in America over the time. I think, and I think it's those all combined, accrued, and I don't yeah. know, some interesting feelings they were all going through that they have this year where they go, oh. Everything's over, but it's like it's kind of been dying over a couple of years due to a lot of big historical events. And, of course, because the, you know, and, and you mightn't even he- know about the Manson family murderers if you aren't necessarily a, um, some kind of uh, buff of, of historical true crime. I feel like that's probably one probably of the more enough. well-known murders, yeah. and I think he's probably pretty notorious. I would say he's probably – I mean, I could be wrong, but I would think, yeah – because it, it um, revolves around um, Roman Polanski, the director's then wife, Sharon Tate, mm-hmm. um, there are other reasons, pop culture reasons, for it to have had resonated. And, of course, in the film world, it's yeah. enough one of those big things. They also reference um, uh, other unfortunate... Um, Incidents involving uh, fatalities and Hollywood celebrities um, regarding possibly, I, th- I thought, the Natalie Wood um, yeah. um, death. But I, I'm not entirely sure. But look, this is the thing. This is a film that's, um, that's, that's full of all of Tarantino's tropes. Do you think so? Yes, I, absolutely, 100%. I feel like there's a lot here where it's, it, it's not in the style of what people have come to expect from him for a large portion of the film, like that kind of very haphazard shoot 'em up pastiche vibe. Mm. I actually think it was much more of a straight narrative and a lot less dialogue that people come to expect from a Tarantino film. But I do agree that I think there's something about the heart of the film that is so Tarantino, like the way the characters are portrayed and the building of character that is very him. I think it's unquestionably a Tarantino film, but I think he doesn't go into a lot of the places he would usually go with his films. Ah, we shall see. So that's what I mean. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of the stuff that you associate with what his style is in this. Well, uh, just to just to run up into the plot just a little bit, um, uh, it's 1969. Rick Dalton, who used to star in a Western yes. series, a television hit. series, a hit, Bounty Law, he thinks his career's done with. He's struggling to break into film. He's even desperate enough to maybe uh, go off and do spaghetti westerns in Italy, yeah. uh, which he th- he thinks is like you know well, this is nobody, nobody will watch these. It'll be awful things. And Leo is so good in this role. Leo plays Rick Dalton, and he plays him brilliantly. He is his tantrums, the way he oh, it's so Leonardo DiCaprio is a brilliant actor. Like yeah. he's incredible. Anyone who says he's not. I disagree with you. <laughs> now, his friend and stunt double, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, yes. um, is along with him on this weird and wonderful mm. ego-driven journey. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I mean, he this is uh, mirroring a partnership between Burt Reynolds and his stuntman, mm. uh, a buddy-buddy team-up. So, you know, just one of many billions of Easter eggs in this film and references. And their interactions and their relationship is really, I think they bounce off each other really well. They do. They do. And, I mean, Brad Pitt is very much playing more of the straight man in this to Leo's kind of tantrum baby. (laughs) Well, it's a a very complex relationship and... um, Very imbalanced as well. Whenever you think that uh, Cliff is the better man, Mm. there are some turns in it and you think, oh, maybe not, you know, and you think... Yeah. So there's, there's this interesting little... Um, by play between the two of them. I do like that it's not cl- Cliff is a clear cut good guy because he's definitely there's some he's question marks are hovering around his head. Dodgy sure. skeletons in his closet. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, act, and Roman Polanski uh, and his wife, actress Sharon Tate, yes. live next door. Yes, to, to Rick. And that's where you get this other stream of, of stuff. As as Tarantino often does, he'll mix two things coming in or more. Yeah. Two strands. And Sharon Tate, obviously played by Margot Robbie, mm-hmm. Australian actress, who um, has starred with Leo in Wolf of Wall Street before. Yep. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of sort of really getting up and running at the moment. So mm. I think she's really great. Uh, she doesn't have a baseball bat in this one like she did in uh, 
um, Suicide Squad. Yes. I mean, look, Suicide Squad, I think, that aside, I think she's done some really – I mean, she was great in I, which, which is a film that should have been done by Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. You actually, would have had fun with that, hey? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think she really shines as Sharon Tate in this. She does. With very few lines. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously something that's been brought up about her – people saying that she doesn't really have a role in this and she doesn't have very many lines. Um I do think that he obviously cares a lot about that character of Sharon Tate and I think that she's kind of the essence of the film and a big part of the point he's trying to make with the film. And I think I also think Margot Robbie doesn't have very many lines but I actually do think she's doing quite a lot in the film with very little. Tarantino said, and you can always find something that Tarantino said about uh, his films. He is verbose, yes. He is verbose. <laughs> and I admire that actually. Because um, in, in in I've been watching um, the nine movies that um, he's recommended from that era. Yeah, with his yeah, narrations. yeah. Yep. Uh, the Wrecking Crew was one of those. Oh, too, really? Actually. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and he, he said that he just wanted to show her – he just wanted to hang with her on screen. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually I find that quite moving. And I Because do... she's the MacGuffin. She's the, the, the Maltese falcon of the story ostensibly – and it does have the support of her family as well, the film. Yeah. And they've really – they've supported his portrayal of her. I mean, look – She's wearing some of Sharon's jewellery. She is. And that was yeah. given to her by the family. And mm. I think there's a, a totally separate conversation which we're not going to have about Tarantino's – the depiction yeah, of gender yeah. in his films. We don't want to go down that road. I think we talk specifically here and I think – she m- may not have many lines, but yeah. I don't think that means that she isn't an important part of the film. The movie that um, they talk about flying off to Europe to make, not the uh, spaghetti western one that um, um, that, that uh, DiCaprio's character's talking about, is um, Fearless Vampire Hunters. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Killers, hunters, killers, you know, whatever. Um, anyway, uh, okay, there's, there's some things I wanted to mention. Uh, in the tr- I, think, I actually think the tropes are important. There's the diag- diegetic sound produced from sources in the films, yep. which is mostly radio, sometimes television, yep. occasionally a movie um, screening, yep. uh, record players, mm-hmm. uh, and all of them all of them are always cut off by doors closing. <laughs> this is pretty much... Oh, so you're going closing. real deep cut tropes. All right, okay. Oh, I can give hard, you that. I can give deep. you that. Um, cars are horses. Mm. They function the same way that they do in westerns in this film. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of good driving stuff. We even actually have a kind of a, a, a car, a horse outclassed by a car episode. <laughs> yeah, this story. that's right. That's a very good scene. So you are actually passing from the old west to the modern world. So mm-hmm. again, this is a metaphor for the Hollywood situation. Well, this is the thing. There's also a bit of a narrative around like the dying elements of Hollywood, yep. like the Manson family were living on an old. Ranch, spalls, spans, I can't remember yeah. the name of it, a, di- a ranch that used to be used for movies um, and there's a portion of the film that takes place there and I think some of those parallels aren't by mistake. Oh, none of them are. So, um, uh, certainly not the casting of Bruce Dern, now a yes. uh, Tarantino staple, but he's a veteran of, of that old Western era from the television series yeah, and movies yeah. and here he is ageing in this. Yeah. Um, we've got... Um, see, this brings me to the, to the Easter egg references built into this film not only from all of the television shows from the era, <laughs> I don't mean all of them, uh, but also the movies and so on, um, and, and music, mm. from not only other people's work, but from Tarantino's now nine films yeah, form the yeah. body of work that he draws upon. Yes. So it's self-referential uh, to the point that um, Brad Pitt's war hero character, that he's, own st- he's a stuntman mm. now, could be cut from his Inglorious Bastards role. Really, basically, it's it's kind of very similar character, uh, and, yeah. and and the, the stable of actors continues with their roles also being callbacks, like Zoe Bell and Kurt Russell. Yes, yeah, they uh, appear again. Russell's also the narrator. Um, their roles as stunt coordinators in this film echo that death proof thing. And Zoe Bell is a famous stunt um, stunt woman for anyone who doesn't know. Oh, and Luke Perry gets a cameo. Is, is oh. It? Yeah, my heart. Yeah. I was that was really lovely. And he, I mean, in his later years before he went back to Riverdale, he starred in quite a lot of um, yeah. little westerns and things like that. So I think yeah, did, a lot he? of this casting is not by mistake. Um, and there's a lot of uh, clever little nods to, and there's some wonderful interactions between Leo and a young actress as well. Yeah, in it, I think I personally really. We talked a little bit about this before the show. I, as someone who is interested in old Hollywood, I enjoyed a lot of that. 
behind the scenes, natural stuff that just happened in that place on sets, looking at, at the whole movie machine. I really liked that. Um, I could spend five hours cutting the references out in this. And um, at one stage, um, 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 not Kurt Russell, Brad Pitt's, um, his house is a trailer next to a drive-in. Yes, yeah, yeah. And when he drove into that the first time, I swear I saw the truck from Duel parked there in the darkness. (laughs) I could be mistaking his trailer because they had a similar sort of um, streamliner sort of form. But it made me wonder, mm. you know, because Tarantino is perfectly capable of doing that kind yeah. of thing. And I, and I felt that um, these Easter eggs, the, the deeper cuts of them, like when a character rides off on a motorcycle, we know that it's a reminder that the real-life actor lost an arm and a leg in a motorcycle accident, mm. you know. And, and, of course, Sharon Tate will go and see herself in a screening of the, the Dean Martin movie that she's in, the spy fry, fry thriller, The Wrecking Crew. Of which they use... Um the real footage, yeah, which I thought was a lovely nod, yeah. actually. And they also did a quick flash of her training for that martial arts sequence. Yeah, that, that was Bruce very cool. Lee. I liked that. The guy who's playing Bruce Lee in this film. Yeah. Um, another controversy that we now that's get another into, controversy. Look, I did not care for the the way that that um, Tarantino handled that, mm. but I know it's fiction that he's trying to do this once upon a time fantasy, mm. and it's kind of a funny joke to be had in 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 the way they played it, but. Because it did sort of parallel the racism in Hollywood at the time, yeah, I felt very uncomfortable funny. by yeah, that. Maybe I'm supposed to be uncomfortable with it because it is an uncomfortable thing. So I didn't quite find it worked. I don't know. Yeah. I I think it wasn't worth more than it has up, been upsetting. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. what you get from I just think it could have been dialed back or included differently. Yeah. Um, and, and here's the thing um, – this is a film that Easter eggs and references not just in the in the looks of the scenes and the fights and the dialogue and the you know, practically everything else, but one of the things particularly I noticed was the significant billboards for movies coming oh, yeah. out, mostly in period. I checked, which became ironic title cards. Mm. You know, if you knew those films, like yeah, yeah, I Station Zebra, Funny Girl, Night They Raided Minsky's, uh, Tora, I saw the Tora, Funny Tora, Girl Tora. one, yeah. yeah. Romeo and Juliet, plus television shows, Westerns, Man from Uncle, often seen on buses riding past. And you'd see a Western set, a saloon being rolled off, the flat yeah. you know, set being rolled off. And I, mean, I felt that was happening all the time in the actual movie. All of that's – I mean, yeah, it's this double-layer thing like, you know, Brad, Brad Pitt's playing this character who's a support for a star, but he's actually a star. And, yeah. you know, there's all these different layers and I think – some of those nods, I mean, those are things that are included by someone who loves movies as well. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, what what did you overall – I mean, we've dissected it a lot. What was your overall feeling about the film? Well, just just to finish off that, that part, we have mentioned this before in, in context of other people's pastiche films that they've cobbled – that they've stitched together and with mm. so many references. And they at, at one stage they become metaphors and they – they they rise up off of the slab themselves as a whole creature. Yeah. Just you know, so it becomes like that Star Trek Next Generation episode, Darmok, where metaphors are a language. Mm. And so you get this quite rich palette. Now mm. I, I don't pretend to know all of these references cold. And you don't need to. You like don't just need to, to say yeah, like this is very interesting kind of behind like how the puzzle bits fit together, but you by no means need to be very familiar with no. that era of film, no. westerns or any of that. You don't need that background. Look, I had more fun with Hail Caesar. Yeah, which is sure. A, which is a sim- similar film in yeah, a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, because I, the fantasy history blended together with real history and, and it distorts both. And, and, I... and the final trope, um, the, the rampaging riot of fantasy revenge that, mm. that Tarantino has in practically all of his That's films. his vibe. <laughs> mm, apart, yeah. from, apart from foot fetishism, which is here on display. Um, I... I don't know if I'm a little tired of that trope now, you know. Of oh, really? The, 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 yeah, not. The, but you don't feel the execution was different. I mean, I never thought I'd say it, but I think this is a more understated film than something like Hail Caesar, <laughs> yeah. which is boggling. Which is what I mean by it. I think it will surprise some people when they expect certain things from a Tarantino film that this film doesn't do. Yeah, I feel like the execution of this was different enough that it felt fresh to me. Okay. Even though obviously it's still very seeped in a lot of the things Tarantino loves to do and I think he does well. Yeah. I felt it was something new from him. 
I feel like this is the this is a, these things are now all orbiting in its own little self replicating Tarantino verse, mm. you know, because these these films all do technically speaking take place in the same weird universe. Yeah, um, and, 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 and think, it actually is enough. And he's addressed that too. Like yeah. I think he he likes the fact he's made his own mythology. Mm. Um, and I I don't know. I I think there is something to be said for people who are infamously known for certain things, doing having an interesting look at, at, at periods of time and, you yeah. know, the kind of things you can do with that. Mm. Um, look, I certainly had fun. Mm. Um, and I actually say, and I certainly give this this movie, a, you know, and on the yeah, no, maybe rating scale, I give it a, a, a hell yeah, partner. Yeah, same. Because it was complicated enough and interesting enough and... And wistful enough and poignant. I don't often find a Tarantino film to be poignant. I did. I find it very poignant. I mean, I don't think there will be some people that don't like it. And it does get quite violent at the end. And I know. Of course it does. Of course it does. (laughs) Someone who I went with said it was a bit much. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. I thought something about it. I really, really spoke to me. I really liked it. Hmm. Yeah. So, and if you are interested in learning more about sort of Charles Manson and that whole era, there's a very good podcast called You Must Remember This and they do a little series on on that and they do a very good job of covering it without like just covering the schlocky headline stuff. So, um, yeah, if you want to know a little more about that, check that out. Okay. You Must Remember This. All right. Now we'll have had a bit of a gabble. Let's have some other people gabbling for a moment. <laughs> Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? <laughs> yeah. Now, we're about to go out with Zero-G. Just a bit of a, 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 a what would you call it, a presage? <laughs> yeah. A heraldic moment, <laughs> or heralding the next week's show. We're going to talk about um, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance next week. Brilliant show on Netflix at the moment. You yes. want to watch it? Maybe uh, do some homework and go and watch the original um, mm. uh, Dark Crystal movie from 1982 before next week. There you go. Do that. Next, coming up next is uh, Joe Granatic with Astral Glamour, and we'll give you a tiny bit of um, Mr. Bowie's uh, dance magic from the Labyrinth movie, which we will continue with next week. Thanks a lot, Negan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.